If you turn with me to Matthew chapter 28, we'll start in verse 16 together. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mighty and marvelous word and opportunity as a congregation to study it together. We pray that we would come humbly, that we would come with minds that are open to receive your truth and hearts that yearn to know you more and to love you and wills that are increasingly being conformed to your will. I pray that we would hear these verses that for many of us are very, very familiar. But Lord, remind us of this great task before us. Remind us of your authority and of your promise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Well, happy Father's Day. I don't know if we've said that yet today. Happy Father's Day. Well, we come we come today in uh, this week in our gospel harmony to the conclusion of the gospel of Matthew. And therefore we come to some words that are very familiar to us but some extremely important words from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We're going to look this week at the last words of Jesus as recorded by Matthew's Gospel. Next time that I'm with you, we'll look at the last words of Jesus as recorded by Luke's Gospel. And as you remember, last a couple weeks ago we finished John's Gospel. As I mentioned last week in our concluding sermon from Family Camp from 2 Timothy, the, the last recorded words of people are typically given our heightened attention. So surely we ought to be familiar and conversant with these words as recorded coming from Jesus' lips to his disciples. But also endeavoring, we ought to also endeavor every day to practice these words. That's going to be part of the challenge before us this morning. I'm sure all of us might even be able to quote these verses The question that really ought to bear down on our hearts and minds this morning is, are we fulfilling that responsibility given to us? Are we being consistent in following through with what is our great task? Our purpose today is to consider what our responsibility is. Having become those who have heard and received by God's grace the gospel, what are we to do now? It's important that we identify our responsibility, that we know what our commission is. Just as a set of soldiers need to know what their responsibility is, not only among one another, but what is our mission? What is our task? What are we going out to do? We don't just send an aircraft carrier across the ocean for no good reason, right? There's an investment made in that. There has to be a reason why we're going, and once we get there, we need to know what is the mission? What equals success? What are we after? Similarly, for any employee, they need to know, what are my job responsibilities? What am I being asked to do? So by the time I get to the end of a year and I get some year-end evaluation, I know that we're on the same page about what I'm supposed to be doing and what I'm being evaluated for. If that's the case in those situations, so it is the case that Christians need to be aware and familiar with the job they have been entrusted with. What is our commission as Christians? What mandate has Jesus given to us? So as we turn here to the last verses of Matthew 28, we find some very straightforward words to us. 
for context's sake, I think it might be helpful to go back a few sections and consider the events leading up to these words that were given by Jesus as recorded in Matthew's Gospel. Now, if you travel back to Matthew chapter 27, starting in around verse 32, that's there where we read of Jesus' crucifixion, of his death, and then of his burial. Then when you get to verse 62 of chapter 27, you're going to see the Pharisees and the chief priests talking to Pilate. They remember that Jesus said something about rising in three days. And they're concerned about these words because they tell Pilate, what happens if some of Jesus' disciples come and steal his body? They're concerned about that. They said, if that happens, word might travel that he actually rose from the dead and this latter case will be worse than what it was before. Now we'll not only have this great teacher, this one who taught with authority that no one had ever heard of before, not only will we have this man who performed all these miraculous acts, not only will we have this man who is compassionate and caring towards the people, but now we'll have this guy who predicted that he would rise again, and that message will spread. So we can't allow such a farce to happen. We must put a set of guards or soldiers at the tomb. We must seal the stone to make sure that this does not transpire. Pilate allows it. Then in Matthew 28, starting in verse 1, Mary and, and Mary go to see the tomb. The earthquakes were told, and an angel appears, and the stone rolls back. For fear, the guards that are standing there tremble, and we're told that they become like dead men. The angel speaks to the women and says, do not be afraid. Jesus has risen. Take a look. Then they tell Jesus' disciples, they tell Jesus' disciples to go, um, they're told to go tell Jesus' disciples to go to Galilee. The women leave with fear, we're told, and great joy. They're shocked and amazed, and they run to go tell the news. And while they're running on the way, Jesus meets them on the way, and they fall down at his feet. They worship him. Jesus tells them again, those same words that the angel said, do not be afraid, but go tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee. So here's the instructions these ladies are supposed to deliver to the disciples. Now, meanwhile, when we come back to these wicked men, and in verse 11 of chapter 28, we're told that some of the guard go and they run and tell the chief priests. So they convene a council and the elders meet. And the soldiers are paid a substantial amount of money to lie about what happened. They're told to tell the very thing that the religious leaders are trying to prevent from happening. They tell them, tell everyone, make your report be, that the disciples stole his body. Interesting. The very thing they wanted to stop, which they weren't able to do because Jesus rose from the dead miraculously, is now the very words that they're going to speak. Now imagine this. I mean... For these soldiers, they are put on guard with a specific mission. Make sure the disciples don't steal Jesus' body. And now what are they going to announce? The disciples stole Jesus' body. So soldiers probably would see their own lives come to an end at that kind of gross insubordination or inability to fulfill what task they had been given. So Added with this, they're promised and guaranteed that good words will be put in with the governor and we'll cover you to make sure that you don't get into trouble for this. And this false story is promulgated among the Jews, we're told. Okay, so all that's set up. And then we get to verse 16. And look at how verse 16 begins. But. (laughs) So all that's happening. But the 11 disciples proceeded to where? To Galilee, the very place where the women had told them to go to. So this false story about the disciples stealing the body, the disciples themselves know they didn't steal Jesus' body, and they're told to go to Galilee, and so off to Galilee they go. They arrive at an appointed mountain. This is not the first time that instructions have come from God to God's leaders or God's people up on a mountain. This passage is called the Great Commission, because there's a pattern of this that we see throughout the scriptures. Time and time again, we see this sort of commission language being given. And with the commission, notes of authority and notes of promise. Think back to the calling of Abraham. Think back to the calling of Moses. Think back to the calling of Joshua. Think back to the calling of Gideon. 
Think back to the calling of Samuel. Think back to the calling of Isaiah or Jeremiah. I mean, each one of these individuals were God's servants who knew their own inadequacy. What? You're calling me to that task? How am I able to do that? But God assures them that he will empower them and that his presence will go with them. And with his power and with his presence, they'll be able to accomplish the task he set before them. Seeing Jesus, we're told that they worshipped him. Jesus was stronger than death. He had risen from the dead. And yet, simultaneously, in the same sentence there we have, but some hesitated. Some hesitated. They worshipped, but some hesitated. Perhaps some were struggling, believing that this was really Jesus. Is it because they had a hard time recognizing him in his resurrected state? We remember that the two disciples that walked with Jesus on the road to Emmaus didn't recognize him for some time, right? They walked and talked upon the road, as recorded in Luke 24. We know the disciples in the boat are told by Jesus to cast their nets to the other side. Remember, we saw this in John's Gospel. And they don't recognize it as Jesus until John, after this miraculous catch happens, John elbows Peter and says, It's the Lord! And then Peter, you know, literally swimming to shore. It's possible that maybe there were others that were there even beyond the eleven. And maybe those are the ones who are hesitating. We know in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, that there was at one time at least a group of more than 500 that saw Jesus on one occasion. Could this have been that occasion? It was certainly a region in which Jesus had done lots of ministry, region of Galilee. Or could it merely be that Jesus was approaching from some distance and they were wondering, could it be? Could they trust their eyes? And then we're told that Jesus drew near. Whatever the case, this even this small note of hesitation I think is interesting. It reminds us that even among Jesus' closest followers, those who have come to meet with him there in Galilee, that these men were not perfect. Jesus worked through imperfect vessels to accomplish his plan. And that's good news for us, for it means that he can do great things with us today as well, for certainly none of us in this room are perfect vessels. Perhaps when you do a real solid examination of your own mind and heart, you would see just how vastly we vacillate the hesitations that form within our own hearts. And yet, Jesus can turn the world upside down with hesitating people. Perhaps you've struggled with hesitation, specifically with the subject in mind this morning, with evangelism. Have you ever hesitated as it relates to sharing Jesus with a neighbor, a friend, a family member? Have you ever had moments in retrospect, maybe an hour later, a day later, where you're like, man, I can't believe that I didn't use that opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ with that person? It reminds us of the individual who, that demon-possessed boy's father who had cried out, you know, I believe, help my unbelief. So coming up to them, Jesus announces the great task for his disciples, and he does it in three parts. There's three parts to this commission or this great task that he gives to his disciples. The, The first is that Jesus declares his authority. The second is that Jesus delivers his command. And the third is that Jesus discloses his promise. There's a mention of Jesus' authority. There's then Jesus' command. And then we see Jesus' promise. A way that Hendrickson divided these points is a great claim, Jesus' authority, a great commission or command or task that was given, and a great comfort. If you like that, you can also write those down. A great claim, a great commission, a great comfort. You see, this task is certainly given to all Christians. But with it being Father's Day, I suggest that fathers in the room consider the particular responsibility that we have to ensure that the gospel is being regularly communicated within our families. 
And then to live out the implications of this great commission, this great task, both inside our homes as well as outside of our homes. I believe that fathers have a responsibility to model for their families how this great task is their great duty and great privilege. Dad, something you can be considering, as we all consider the Great Commission, but dads in particular, consider how are you leading your family in showing that this great task is really the great task of your life? How do you demonstrate that? How are you failing to demonstrate that? Allow the Lord to examine your heart and mind as we work through this. Jesus begins by declaring his authority. He makes a great claim, a great claim that is true. One thing to just claim something and it not be true. But this is a great claim and it is true. It corresponds with reality. Verse 18, Jesus came up and spoke with them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus has universal authority. He has it in heaven, and he has it on earth. Who else can claim such a thing? You know, even the greatest emperors and kings of the land could maybe claim some great authority over a geographical area. And some people like the Roman Empire with the Caesars could claim a large geographical area. But none of them could claim the whole earth. And none of them could even come close to claiming the heavens and the earth. Centuries earlier, the prophet Daniel had announced, we had this read this morning in Daniel 7, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the, a son of man was coming. He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Again, what a contrast. What earthly king can claim such a thing? Who can claim, my kingdom will never be destroyed? How many times have we seen kingdoms rise and fall? How many great nations have come into the forefront and have been the superpowers of the world, only years later to crumble to ashes? Who can claim a universal kingdom? Who can claim an everlasting dominion? The term that Jesus used most often to refer to himself was son of man. And here Jesus is declaring that he is the son of man given dominion over all. He's been given glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is everlasting. It is not passing away. It is unable to be destroyed. His authority is over all. As Lockridge said, you can't impeach him and he ain't going to resign. Jesus' earthly ministry gave us glimpses into this authority, right? They were just glimpses, small glimpses. Jesus is able to perform miraculous things, sometimes with a word, sometimes with a touch of the hand, sometimes by someone touching his garment, sometimes without a word. Jesus exercises authority over nature by changing water to wine, by walking on water, by creating bread and fish. He exercises authority over demons by casting them out. He exercises authority over disability and disease by healing paralytics, by giving sight to the blind, by cleansing lepers. He exercises authority to forgive sin by pronouncing sinners forgiven. (laughs) And remember when the religious leaders hear that, they're like, blasphemy! Who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly! Jesus is God. As God-man, Jesus would pay the penalty for all the sins of those who would ever believe in him. He certainly is the one who can truly forgive sins. Jesus exercises authority over death by bringing the widow's son back to life while on the funeral pyre and raising Lazarus from the dead after having been in the grave for three days. Lord, he must stinketh by now, right? Roll away the stone, bring him out. Lazarus, come forth! And out Lazarus walks. Mark presents Jesus' authority in a machine gun-like fashion, one after the other. One of Mark's favorite words is immediately. Immediately this. Immediately that. Immediately this. You can go and check that out. You read through the um, 
chapters of Mark, especially the early chapters. But just to give you a quick sampling of this, listen to this. This is Mark 4, verse 35 through 41. Jesus is asleep at the stern of the boat while a storm brings experienced fishermen to believe that they would die. Right? These men who had been on the seas, they knew storms. But Jesus rebukes the wind and waves and they calm down. And the question comes up, who is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Jesus has authority over nature. Then in Mark 5, verses 1 through 20, Jesus casts legion out of the garrison demoniac, a man who had torn apart chains and broke shackles in pieces. No one, we were told, was able to subdue him. No one could keep him contained. Yet Jesus, after healing this man, this man then sits, clothed, we're told, in his right mind. Jesus exercises a power over demons. In Mark 5, verses 25 to 34, Jesus heals the woman with a 12-year issue of blood when she touches the tassel from his garment in faith while in the midst of a huge crowd. He shows power over disease. In Matthew 5, verses 21 through 24, and then 35 through 43, the very event that is interrupted for that moment while this woman touches Jesus' garment, we see Jairus' daughter raised from the dead. Remember, Jairus' daughter is sick. Jairus comes to tell Jesus about it. This little interruption. I wonder how much Jairus is like, man, this this thing slowed this whole thing down. I need you to come to Jesus. And his servants come to him and say, she's already dead. Don't bother him any further. And Jesus says, no, just only believe. I'm still going to visit her. And he raises the little girl up. In Mark 6, verses 33 through 44, Jesus feeds the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. And when he's done, there are 12 baskets of broken pieces and fish left over. In Mark 8, verses 1 through 9, Jesus feeds the 4,000 with seven loaves and a few fish. And seven large basketfuls are left over. We see Jesus' power again over nature. In Mark 6, 45 through 52, Jesus walks on water to his disciples in the middle of the sea. While they're straining at the oars against a hard wind. You know, I mean, there's multiple levels of the miraculous. Certainly, if Jesus can walk on water, he can walk on waves. <laughs> but, but just imagine the scene. We're, we're struggling just to even make any progress across the sea. And here comes Jesus just strolling upon the waves. In Mark 6, 53 through 56, Jesus heals a great multitude of people suffering from various ailments and conditions. It's one of these moments where it's like, we can't contain all of the various things that Jesus did. So here's one of those moments where like, he healed a lot of people on this occasion. In Mark 7, verses 24 through 30, Jesus heals the Syrophoenician woman's daughter who's possessed by a demon. In Mark 7, 31 through 37, Jesus heals a, a deaf mute man. He grants his ears to hear. He looses his tongue to speak. Shows his authority over disability. But besides all of Jesus' miracles, Jesus demonstrated a unique authority when it came to teaching. People recognized when he taught that he was one who taught having authority and not as the scribes. The scribes always appealing to some other person or some other thing. Jesus spoke on his own authority. Jesus took authority as it related to cleansing the temple at least two times in his earthly ministry, kicking out the money changers and the profiteering that had turned his father's house from a house of prayer into a robber's den. And Jesus' authority extends beyond this earth to heaven. Not only are human beings subject to his sovereignty, but so are all the angelic hosts. Elect angels and fallen ones, angels and demons. Even Satan functions subserviently. The devil is is only able to do what the Lord permits and no further. See, for example, Job or Revelation. Satan is on a leash. Jesus is Lord. And this is true whether man acknowledges it or not. Having come, lived, died, risen, ascended to heaven, Jesus now sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he is Lord of all creation. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 explains that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, those in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Remember that great throne room scene in Revelation 5? There's a sealed scroll, and no one is able to open it. We're told that no one is worthy to open the scroll. 
And then the Lion of Judah, the Lamb standing as those slain, comes. And he alone is worthy to break the seals. He alone has the authority. He alone is worthy to govern the whole future course of history. For he governs all of history. His authority has no bounds. You see, the gospel message that we proclaim is grounded and surrounded in kingdom. You see, if you've been saved, you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You've been made part of Jesus' kingdom. So by necessary consequence, you are under Jesus as your king and as your Lord. How can you be part of a kingdom? How can you be part of a kingdom if you don't obey the king? I'm not saying that any of us obeys King Jesus perfectly. But to say that it is possible for someone to be a Christian and yet never declare Jesus to be their king. Is to say that Jesus can be your savior, but you don't have to submit to him as your Lord. is just flatly absurd. What does it mean to be part of Jesus' kingdom if you don't submit to him as your king? What does it mean to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light if there's no distinction? sort of distinction can't be maintained biblically. Those who are saved are those who, what? Call upon the name of the Lord. The Lord, the King. He who has all authority. Another way to say it, those who love God are those who are, by God's grace, are called and saved and redeemed. And they're not only forgiven of their sin, but they're also gifted to obey Him as Lord. Their hearts are changed, their wills are changed, their minds are changed. There's no place they'd rather be than in his presence. There's no place they'd rather be than be a slave to him. Everyone will one day confess Jesus' lordship, but if you wait until that day to do so, it will be too late for your soul. Waiting until that moment, it will be too late. Then you will acknowledge Jesus' lordship. Everyone will acknowledge his lordship one day. Everyone will. But on that day, you'll also be met with the just penalty for your sin. The Bible describes it as hell. But if you will repent now and call out to Jesus, you can be forgiven and cleansed and granted his righteousness. Now, Jesus' authority then compels our obedience. He, he starts this by saying, first of all, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Since Jesus is our king, since he is our master, when he gives commands, we obey. If parents and husbands and police officers and pastors and governors and presidents and judges exercise certain spheres of authority over us and we're compelled to obey them, how much more are we under compulsion to listen and obey the bridegroom of the church, the governor of the universe, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the judge of all? Jesus is worthy of our obedience, and it's a worthwhile task telling others about him that they too might rightly recognize the surpassing value and worth of Jesus and glorify him. Our Savior deserves all of our praise, so we tell others about him that he might receive the worship and the glory that he is due. This is not a kicking and screaming obedience. It is joyful obedience. There's love in this. Our love shows itself in obedience. Jesus' lordship extends to the whole earth. His rule extends far beyond local politics to universal kingship over everything. So he tells his disciples, your focus, which has been up to this point, been to the Jews in particular, is going to broaden to the whole earth to bring this message of the gospel to the ends of the earth, to all nations. I think it's important that we consider, I'm sure that all the things I just said, we would generally all agree with. We, yes, yes, yes. I mean, if we were really a vocally outspoken, we've said amen through all of those things, right? I mean, we're saying that in our hearts, right? The question is, how does this actually translate to the way we live? All of us are to be involved. Here's some questions for you to consider. 
In what ways is the way that you handle your finances demonstrate that this is your great task? In what ways does the way you handle your finances demonstrate that this is your great task? How does the way you approach prayer, the amount of time you spend in prayer, the manner in which you pray, demonstrate that you care about what Jesus has given to you? How does it reflect in the way in which you approach your own education, your own learning? How does it affect, perhaps, how you decide what to do with time off or vacation time? Maybe some challenges to think about. None of us can do all of these things all at once, but just some things to ponder. Have you ever thought about learning another language just for the purpose of being able to share the gospel to someone in that other language? I know, it's a big task. But is it worth it? Have you ever thought about helping with vacation Bible school? Maybe you're someone who's not really great with kids in general, but willing to help in some way, shape, or form because the task of the gospel is worth it. How about exercising hospitality, inviting people into your home, and not just brothers and sisters in Christ, but lost people, neighbors, friends, reaching out to them with express purpose of using opportunities to share the truth of Jesus Christ with them. You see, Jesus' authority compels our obedience. He has all authority in heaven and earth. But it also gives us confidence. It not only compels us, but it gives us courage. It gives us confidence. I think there's a couple ways in which we're given courage and confidence in what Jesus says. But the first way is this, that he has all authority. Knowing that Jesus has been given all authority not only compels us to obey him as our sovereign Lord, but it encourages us in the task. For we haven't been commanded by some weak, feeble master, but one who is powerful to complete all that he sets out to accomplish. Right? It's like the difference being given a command from someone who is in charge and in authority and is victorious versus someone who is beaten down and near death. What kind of encouragement comes from this? You see, a deep trust in God's sovereignty actually fuels our ministry. It fuels our service. It fuels our evangelism. It fuels our missionary endeavors. It's this confidence that allows us to persevere in the midst of the most difficult circumstances. In fact, if it was dependent upon us, it would be a hopeless case indeed, right? Lord, you picked the wrong people here. But since our God is at work, no one is beyond his ability to save. No sinner can outsin God's ability to save. So no one's beyond his reach. We persevere in this commission given to us because our God is powerful to save. He has all authority. He can bring to pass his purposes. I love, I love, we had this read in 2 Timothy this morning also. I love this passage, 2 Timothy 2, 8-10. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. So here, again, Paul, talking to Timothy. We just spent time in this book this last week. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God isn't imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it, eternal glory. Paul can persevere in the midst of his own imprisonment, his own persecution, because he knows that Jesus has all authority. You know, wicked men will try to accomplish their things, but they're all under the authority of Jesus, ultimately. And Jesus accomplishes all his purposes. I like the way that David Platt said it. Jesus' mission will succeed because his authority guarantees it. After Jesus spoke his final words to the disciples, he ascended to heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of the Father. Now in his exalted position, Jesus empowers his people, directing, guiding, and providing them with everything they need to bring this mission to completion. He says, Matthew 24, 14 is a guarantee. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end 
will come. We're on the front lines of a spiritual battle that's raging for the souls of men and women around the world. And the all-sovereign Son of God, our Savior, is in command of a commission that will be accomplished. If right now I could guarantee you an investment in the stock market that will for sure give you dividends beyond your wildest dreams, because I had authority to tell you that, and I knew how it was going to go, you'd be a fool not to take me up on it. I can't, just by the way. But you'd be a fool not to take me up on it. Here, Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and earth, has given us a command, a commission, a task that will be completed. We know that energy and time and money invested in this is worthwhile, for Jesus will bring it to completion. No time, no money, no effort is wasted when given to this task. Point two, Jesus delivers his command. A a great commission. The command is nestled in the midst of all of this. In the NES, it's the fourth and fifth words. Make disciples. Make disciples. This is the one imperative verb in this command. The rest are all participles describing or explaining how this command is done. We're to make disciples. We're in our going. We'll make disciples. We'll baptize and teach. But it's all about making disciples. Matthew's gospel doesn't end with proclaiming Jesus as king. That definitely is proclaimed here. But it ends with King Jesus telling his disciples to proclaim his kingship as demonstrated in his life, death, and resurrection. So Jesus tells us being a disciple is making disciples. Being a disciple is making disciples. Every member of his church is given the task of engaging those around him or her with the gospel, with the goal of making disciples who will then themselves make disciples. For being a disciple is making disciples. Note, we're not told to make converts. (laughs) We're not told to influence decisions. We're called to produce disciples. We're called to make disciples, to make ongoing learners and followers. Truth must be learned and practiced. Before that, he says, go therefore, or literally read, in your going. In your going, make disciples. Well, it's important that we spend a little time understanding this call, right? This command is also meant to wake us up from slumber and stir us to action. Praying and sending and going with the gospel to the nations. For we must go. Romans 10. Whoever will call in the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call in him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they're sent? Certainly this means that for some of us that means even traveling to across the world. Bringing the gospel to a people who have never heard of Jesus before. But I like the phrase here, in your goings, because wherever you go, you're to make disciples. There's a sense in which whatever your job or occupation is, it's really subservient to this. In some ways, the first thing out of our mouths is, if we, what, what, what do you do? What's your job? To make disciples. Well, how do you do that? Well, I'm an engineer that makes disciples. <laughs> I'm a pastor that makes disciples. I'm a housewife that makes disciples. I'm an educator that makes disciples. This is our great task. This is what we're about. All disciples make disciples. What's your identity? Who are you? I'm his. I'm his. And what's the task I've been given? What's my job in life? To make disciples. Kind of irons us out a little bit further. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Having proclaimed the gospel, a person coming to faith in Christ is then follow him in obedience. And this is like that first step of obedience. We're called to follow him in obedience in being baptized. Baptism doesn't save a person. They're already saved before they enter into the act of baptism. But it's an outward demonstration of an inward change, an inward reality. And it's, in a sense, a first act of obedience. Will you now publicly identify with him who died, was buried, and rose again? As a result, baptism is not something to be put off. 
Note here, even baptized being listed before teaching. And I'm not trying to say that there's no teaching that happens before baptism. I mean, a person has to have some rudimentary understanding of the gospel in order to believe, right? There is a knowledge component to the gospel. It's more than just knowledge, but there is right truth that must be understood and known. It must be also believed. It also must be submitted to. So all that is also true, you know, mind, heart, will, all of that's involved. But certainly there's a content part. If a person says, I'm a Christian, but they're, they're following Buddha or something, they're not a Christian, right? So there's a knowledge component, but I find it even interesting here, baptizing them. So as soon as someone comes to know Jesus, baptize them. It's not something to be put off. We see examples of this in the New Testament. Acts 2, 41, 3,000 souls are converted and they're immediately baptized. They didn't go through eight months of catechism classes. <laughs> they repented, they believed, they were baptized. Acts 8, Ethiopian eunuch, believes in Jesus. He sees a, some water. He says, what prevents me from being baptized? Nothing. Let's go do it. Acts 9, Paul is baptized immediately after receiving back his sight. In Acts 10, Cornelius and his household believed and were baptized. By the way, uh, I know there are some that point to a passage like that and say, well, that's why we baptize infants, because it's household. But I, I'll just note that if you just even read it, Cornelius and his household believed and were baptized. I would just argue that whoever was being described there were all believers and they were all baptized. Note the Trinitarian pronouncement in this too distinctive of Christianity, baptizing in the name, singular, note, in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we worship one God and only one God, and he exists eternally as three persons. And he says, teaching them to keep all I command you. I wonder if Jesus met them on a mount similar to the one that he delivered his Sermon on the Mount. It would be really interesting if it was the exact same one. But even if not, teaching all that I commanded you, and they're up on a mountain, it might have reminded them of that setting. You know, Sermon on the Mount where many commands were given, and in particular, a lot of their eyes were open to, the, to the, not only the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. Jesus commands his followers to keep all. He wants them to keep all of these things. Teaching them to observe all. Observe can also be translated keep all. Hold on to all. It certainly first means you must know these things, but that you must obey what Jesus said. You must then teach what Jesus has said, and that you must teach others to obey what Jesus said. You must know. You must obey. You must teach others. You must teach others to obey. And he makes no exceptions. All that I have commanded you. We're not to pick and choose what suits us. We're to keep it all. Certainly Jesus summed up all of the law and the prophets' commands with love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second following from this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's some who have said, you know, the rest of it all is just commentary on that. In other words, what does it mean to love God with everything? What does it mean to love my neighbor as myself? And go through the Ten Commandments and do that quickly. You know, I mean, it's like, if I love God, then I'm not going to worship an idol. If I love God, I'm not going to take his name in vain. If I love others, I'm not going to commit adultery against my wife. If I love others, I'm not going to envy their stuff. You see how the, all the rest just fills in what does it mean to love God with everything? What does it mean to love my neighbor as myself? Certainly, we know that we are not saved by doing good works, but we are saved for good works. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is very clear about that. By grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works so no one can boast. Next verse, but we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Not saved by good works, but saved for good works. And here Jesus says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. To do this, we have to saturate our lives with the scriptures and sound doctrine, be in conversation with others to tell them about what we've learned. 
This is an ongoing task. It's important that we recognize what the Great Commission has to do with. There's been lots of questions about this over the years. You know, what, is, what is our great task? Some have reduced the gospel to some political effort, some religious right effort, some human right effort, perhaps some humanitarian aid for the impoverished or victims of natural disasters or making it into a thing for healing health problems or needs or social problems like crime or ethical deterioration or addictions, etc. And to answer that, I just want to real quickly say this. First of all, it's kind of a two-part answer. The gospel itself is not immediately about any of those things. I mean, to, to modify the gospel into some political activism is to strip it of its true power. To reduce it to humanitarian aid is to improve a person's few years on earth while failing to impact their eternity. To make it into a health and wealth message is to be wrongly focused upon the here and now when the Bible calls us to consider the life hereafter, the life to come, the new heavens and new earth. To use it to affect moral or ethical change without a thoroughgoing repentance and trust in Jesus is just to trade one damning position for another. A man can go from being a drunkard, an adulterer, a liar, a thief, to being a self-righteous hypocrite and have nothing of his eternal destiny changed. The gospel is about King Jesus, who is the Lord of all and the only Savior. Rather than avoiding it, the gospel exposes our sin that we might admit our need and cry out to Jesus to save us. Without Jesus, we're under the impending wrath of God with nothing but the sheer mercy and patience and forbearance of a holy God from keeping us from a Christless eternity, an eternity of torment and anguish for the wages of sin is death. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, has sent his son to live the life we haven't and to die the death we should have, to pay the penalty for our sin and grant us his perfect righteousness. This is, this is what the gospel is. God is calling men everywhere to repent of their sins and believe and trust in Jesus, the only name under heaven by which men can be saved and brought, to be brought into his kingdom to live under his rule with him forever, all to the glory of God. And to modify the gospel away from this essential message is to miss the whole point. Now, but point number two, however, the gospel does have implications for all of those other things. It certainly has implications for all of those other things. A love for Jesus and a love for people does not result in indifference towards those who are oppressed and suffering. In fact, pure and undefiled religion according to James 1.27, includes visiting orphans and widows in their distress. Look at Jesus' own manner. His compassion was to show care and love to those who were hurting and suffering. His, his miracles were definitely a display of his authority and his power, but they also demonstrated his love and compassion and mercy. He's not only great, but he's good. Jesus told the righteous That their feeding of the hungry, their refreshing of the thirsty, their caring for strangers, their clothing of the destitute, their helping the sick, their visiting those who are in prison, when it was done to the least of these, was done as unto him. Or as James 2 said, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. In other words, a real and true faith is a, is a faith that works. A faith that acts. So the gospel is about a man's relationship with God and placement in regards to God's kingdom, but it then has implications on our care and love for others who are created in God's image. But to reduce it to one of those other things is to strip it of its real power, strip it of the truth of it. We must uphold what the gospel truly is and then talk about the implications of that gospel. How many times do we see even that pattern modeled for us in the New Testament where several of the chapters of the beginning of an epistle are like all about what the gospel is? Ephesians is a good example of this. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, what the gospel is. Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, the implications as a result of the gospel. This is how you ought to live. It's important that we recognize that. Yes, the Bible has something to say, 
to, for example, good day for Father's Day, you know, husbands and fathers towards their children. Ephesians talks about that, but it's after having explained the gospel. The gospel has implications in how we live, but it is not some, to reduce it away from that and to just say the church is all about just trying to make marriages happy and make good fathers and good parents or whatever, is to miss the heart of where that actually comes from. Point number three. Jesus discloses his promise, and he gives us a great comfort. I said before that his authority is a great comfort. Well, certainly the way this ends is also a tremendous comfort. Jesus says in, in verse 20, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus' name, Emmanuel, meaning God with us. He's assured us there with Jesus' coming that God was with his people, Matthew 1, 23. So it's fitting then at the end of Matthew to remind us of this truth. Jesus will always be with us. God with us, Jesus, Emmanuel, came to earth. But he tells us at the end of this gospel, I am with you always. So many of those Old Testament commissioning scenes were... You'd have a dialogue in there where the person who's being called to this great task after God has told them, I want you to go do whatever it is I'm calling you to do. You know, go and get my people out of Egypt. Take my people into the promised land. Go and deliver this message. Whatever it is. So often you'll see the person responding to God in some sort of fashion like, well, how am I going to do this? And if you don't go with me, I don't want to (laughs) go. And so often we see just God giving that assurance to his people, I will go with you. I love that one of the famous ones is when Moses says this in Exodus thirty-three fifteen. If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. You know, that pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, the reminders that the Lord is leading his people, he is with his people. Here Jesus tells us, I am with you. The task of evangelism is therefore not based upon who we are and what we are capable of accomplishing. It's based upon who Jesus is and what he can do in and through us. When you see some great work of art, you don't point to the paintbrushes and go, wow, great paintbrush, great paints. We say, what an amazing artist must have painted this. You see, those tools in my hand, they would be a really shabby picture. No one would you'd want to burn it. But those same tools in the hands of an artist make something beautiful. We're just vessels. We're just tools. And if Jesus is with us and he's working through us, he can do amazing things. I, live, I love even that, that word in Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship. The word there literally in Greek is poema. Sounds like poem, doesn't it? We are his poem. We are his work of art. We're fulfilling the task that he set out beforehand for us to do, but we are his workmanship. It's it's not how inventive or innovative or trendy or able or gifted or talented or wealthy or likable or popular or prestigious or persuasive or powerful we are. Praise the Lord it's not based on that. The success of the church is not found in our strength. In fact, should we focus here, we will not be effective. It is only in our weakness that we are strong, for it is then that we depend upon Jesus. I wonder how often the tasks that he gives to his people are unsettling to us and stretch us on purpose, because in that moment where we feel inadequate, God does great things. He gets all the glory, because we know we couldn't have done it. I mean, why does God call the people of Israel Gideon before going into battle to keep whittling down the number of troops? Why? I mean, certainly if he could beat the enemy nations with 300, he could certainly beat them with 30,000. Why does he whittle them down? So there's no way of Israel taking credit for it. It's his work. And similarly, he works through cracked and broken vessels like us to bring to pass his glorious purposes. And he receives all the glory. He says here, I am with you always. To the day of the completion. To the day of the consummation. To the day of the end of the age. Jesus says, I'll be with you to the end. 
And when Jesus returns in triumph to destroy all hostile powers and to bring the rule of the kingdom of God to its glorious consummation, he's going to be with us till then. And we await that glorious day. I'm sure there have been some moments in our lives where we have said, why not now, Lord? Why not now? Just come back now. In his gracious patience and forbearance, God has deferred that day until the gospel of the kingdom has been preached as a witness to all of the nations. We already read in Matthew 24, 14, the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Think about it for a minute. What is God's purpose in leaving saved people here on this fallen earth in the present? Surely in heaven, our praise will be perfected. Our fellowship will be without sin. Our learning will no longer be fraught with misunderstandings and the cloudiness that we deal with. So why are we left here when we're saved? Why are we left here when we're saved? Come back to that question in a minute. On that day, we'll see that anything and everything that's done for Jesus will be so worth it. Whatever sacrifice, whatever suffering has been encountered, it will be like nothing compared to the weight of glory that is in store for his children. Knox Chamberlain said, The one whose presence sustains his servants until the close of the age will remain with them forever thereafter. We will wel- he will welcome them into the splendors of his Father's kingdom. He will celebrate with them the salvation won by the blood of his cross and his resurrection from the dead. He will grant them glorious bodies like his own and a share in his own universal reign. And he will reward them for their obedience, for their fidelity to him, even in the midst and face of persecution and death. And he will usher them into experiences of worship and fellowship they could never before have experienced or even imagined. Love for God and neighbor will no longer be unattainable realities or goals, but living and abiding realities. We can summarize this great task that's given us with the four alls that are used in this text. All authority has been given to Jesus to commission us to make disciples of all nations baptizing and teaching them all things, strengthened by the promise that Jesus is with us all days up to the consummation of the age. John MacArthur provides an important examination. He says this, If God's primary purpose for the saved were loving fellowship, he would take believers immediately to heaven, where spiritual fellowship is perfect, unhindered by sin, disharmony, and loneliness. If his primary purpose for the saved was learning of his word, he would also take believers immediately to heaven, where his word is perfectly known and understood. If God's primary purpose for the saved was to give him praise, he would again take believers immediately to heaven, where praise is perfect and unending. There's only one reason the Lord allows his church to remain on earth, to seek and to save the lost. Just as Christ's only reason for coming to earth was to seek and to save the lost. As the Father has sent me, he declared, so also I send you, John 20, 21. Therefore, a believer who is not committed to winning the lost for Jesus Christ should re-examine his relationship to the Lord and certainly his divine reason for existence. Put it another way. We put it this way. What is the one way that we can glorify God now with that we will not be able to glorify God with in heaven? What's the one thing we can do right now to glorify God that we will not be able to do when we're in heaven to glorify God? Sharing the gospel with lost people, right? There will be no lost people in heaven. They'll all be believers. Right now is the only opportunity you will have to give this glory to God is to share the truth with unbelievers, those who don't know Jesus. Now I wonder if sometimes, I'm going to close with this, I wonder if sometimes we hear a message on evangelism, we hear the message of the Great Commission, we hear of Jesus' authority over all, we think of all the nations, we think of all these people. You ever been like an amusement park or something before and saw all these people and just felt overwhelmed by it? Like, where do I even begin? I feel overwhelmed by this task. Yeah, Jesus, you have all authority, but like, what am I going to do? I'm like a drop in the bucket. Perhaps you've heard the story of the starfish. I just want to share this quickly. A young man walks along the ocean and sees a beach on which thousands and thousands of starfish have washed ashore. Further along, he sees an old man 
walking slowly and stooping often, picking up one starfish after another and tossing each one gently back into the ocean. The boy comes up to the old man and he says, why are you throwing the starfish into the ocean? The old man said, because the sun is up, the tide is going out, and if I don't throw them further in, they're going to die. But old man, don't you realize there are miles and miles of beach and starfish all along it? You can't possibly save them all. You can't even save one-tenth of them. In fact, even if you work all day, your efforts won't make any difference at all. The old man listened calmly and then bent down to pick up another starfish. He threw that one into the sea and he said, it made a difference to that one. As we close in prayer, what I want to ask you to do today specifically is while I'm praying, I want each of you to think of one person, one person that you know who does not know Jesus, one person that you know is not a Christian. And I want, when I pray, I want you to pray for that person. And I want you to pray specifically for them. I want them to be in your mind, in your heart. I want you to pray to the Lord that the Lord will save them. And then I want you to pray that the Lord will give you opportunities this week, this week, before we get to next Sunday, this week, to share the truth of the gospel with them. Can I just tell you, if you say, well, I don't feel ready, you will never be perfectly ready. You will never be... What, what, what does that mean to be perfectly ready? <laughs> when will you ever be perfectly ready? When is it they ask me questions I don't know? Say you don't know. <laughs> Say you don't know. Tell them what you do know. Tell them what you do know. And tell them, hey, I'll look into it further. Let's talk some more. It'll be the start of a conversation. Pray for one person that you can share the truth and love with this week. And we're going to leave the results in the hands of the Lord... You know, he's the one who has to save an individual, but we've been called as his ambassadors to share the truth with them. And so while Jesus has authority over all, and he's saving people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, don't allow this, the immenseness of the task to prevent you from doing what you can immediately to obey him in this. Don't allow the hundreds of thousands, the millions, the billions of people to prevent you from going next door to your neighbor's house and sharing the gospel with them. Or with a family member that doesn't know Jesus. Or a friend or a co-worker. One person this week. Just think about it for a moment. If we were to do that every week. If each one of us on each Sunday would pick one person we know that, that's a lost person. And we prayed for them specifically. And that week engaged them with the gospel. And if we did this every week. Think about what kind of production might come from that. Some of you might be already engaged in something like that. Might be doing even more than that each week. Wonderful. The Lord bless you. But don't despise small beginnings. Don't sit back on this. Don't be like the boy who said, there's so many, what can we do? Do something with those whom the Lord has put near you. Whatever those near you, those people that are near you, share the truth of the gospel with them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the tremendous courage and confidence that you provide your children. Thank you for the fact that you have saved us. You've opened our eyes to see the truth. You granted us ears that could hear, eyes that could see the glories of Jesus, and hearts that would believe, minds that were open to your truth, wills that transformed by your drawing, by your work upon our hearts. Thank you for the gift of repentance, for the gift of belief, the gift of faith. And Lord, having brought us into your family, transferred us into your kingdom, you've given us a straightforward and a great and glorious task of sharing the truth of your Son with those around us. And Jesus, thank you that you are with us through it all. Lord, we are sorry and we repent of all of the times that we have neglected to share the truth. Lord, may we, even in these moments, be thinking of this person this week that we can be purposeful about engaging with the gospel. And Lord, may it just put in, into a proper and right habit of our life, the ongoing consideration of those around us who don't know you, and may we be quick to share the truth with them. 
Lord, we know you have to change their hearts. So even right now, as each person in this room is praying for these people, I pray, Lord, that you would change their hearts. That you would be working even before we get to their doorsteps or even before we pick up the phone to call them. That you'd be doing something even maybe in these moments to convict them of their sinfulness, to convince them of their need. Help them know their own mortality and that death is soon coming and that you could come back at any time. Lord, may you cause them, prepare them, give them a softened soil, break up the hardened heart that might be there and make it soft, cause it to be pliable. May they be open to hear the truth and may you save them. Lord, we know that you receive all the glory and honor for this and so we commit it to you. Pray that you would help us glorify you in this task. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.